Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Caroline Lundquist, instructor of philosophy and a participating faculty member in the prison education program at the University of Oregon. In addition, she is an affiliated faculty member in the Clark Honors College and the managing editor of Hypatia, a journal of feminist philosophy. Lundquist also teaches philosophy at Lane Community College. She earned a BA in Interdisciplinary Studies from Southern Oregon University and her MA and PhD in Philosophy from the University of Oregon. As a 2022-2023 Oregon Humanities Center Wolf Professor, Lundquist revised and taught a course titled Ethics Through Science Fiction as a remote packet course for the incarcerated students in U of O's prison education program. Thanks, Caroline, for coming on the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me. So first, tell us a little bit about your background and what sparked your interest in philosophy and in particular in ethics. Okay, well, um, my, my interest in philosophy began before I even knew the word. I think as a child, um, I, I've had the pleasure of working with a dear friend and colleague, Paul Bowden, um, who specializes in philosophy for children. And I've, I've sometimes been able to work with him to um, engage in philosophy for children in the 4J community, um, our school district rather. And um, we both believe that children are intrinsically philosophical. And I think I was a, a deeply philosophical child. I used to get into all kinds of debates with teachers and family members about things that I now understand to be issues in metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, and at the time I used my limited vocabulary to try to express those. Um, but I really discovered my calling in my very first college class, which I took at a community college at the age of 15. And that first day, th the way I always describe it to students is for the first time in my life I felt home in the world like I had found the thing that my peculiar brain was just meant to do. <laughs> so it's, it's just been a love story ever since then. So the, the Wolf uh, course that you're doing as the Wolf Professor, it started uh, not as a prison education course, just ethics Correct. and science fiction. So tell us, first of all, what brought that course about in its first iteration? Yes, yeah, so that course was originally designed for the Clark Honors College. And the way it came about is, well, I was reading a book, one of the books that's used in the current version of the course, which is uh, Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which most people will know is the basis for the film uh, and sequel film uh, Blade Runner. And, you know, I, I was just thinking about all of the senses in which new technologies are so intertwined in our lives that ways that we're not even fully conscious of yet. And I was thinking about the way science fiction helps us to make sense of, of all of this entanglement and to start to anticipate the ethical questions that are going to confront us as new technologies emerge. And the basic idea behind the course at that time and now is that there's tremendous value in reading science fiction as philosophy because it can help us to anticipate and to generate the ethical and, and ethically significant metaphysical and epistemological and other kinds of questions that will help us to responsibly engage technologies that confront us and, and to prepare for technologies that are sort of on the horizon and that we imagine are part of a, a plausible future um, before they're even with us. So we have time to think through them. So um, you, you use the Wolf Professorship to transform the course into a, a packet, remote packet course for the prison education program. So first, 
Tell us a little bit about the Prison Education Program. What is the Prison Education Program? Yes, the Prison Education Program, well, I think it might surprise people to know that many people who are incarcerated in the U.S. are students and are college students, just, just as any students we would engage in a college classroom here at the University of Oregon. And some of them are taking classes for personal enrichment, just like some of our students at LCC or the U of O do. Some are working for degrees. Um, and we even have students working at the graduate level. Um, another thing I think might really surprise people about prison education is that some of the most talented, engaged, passionate, highly educated, articulate students I've ever had live in prisons. And um, so I, I was tremendously grateful when I had the opportunity to begin teaching inside because that's something I'd wanted to do for years since I first heard that prison education existed. I, I do need to make one minor correction because originally this redesign of the course was for a packets course. And what ended up happening is I did the redesign as a packets course and then found out, I was so happy to find out that we were able to go inside and teach this as an in-person class. So this is an in-person class now that meets once a week at OSCI in Salem um, for three hours. And yeah. in the, in the uh, version that you thought you would do, yes. it was going to be just an inside course. Is it just an inside course or it do you have is. outside students as well? Well, you know, it's interesting because technically it's just an inside course, but the way a course like this attracts community is so fascinating because just last week, for example, uh, we had a guest come and join us in the class. We have the wonderful Katie Dwyer, who's one of the coordinators of the Prison Education Program. She's uh, joining us for the class as well, and we've had other assistants, and I have an absolutely lovely U of O undergraduate, Francesca Critelli, who's also assisting with the class. And, and we're all equals in the classroom, so we're effectively all students and teachers at the same time. Um, and so it is inside students, but only kind of, because there's some flexibility there. Yeah. So tell, tell us what's different about this iteration of the course and the version of it that you taught in the Honors College. You know, what's different about the course um, is it, it's based on everything I've learned through having taught packets courses before, packets ethics courses. And that's tell a lot. Tell us what a packets course is. A packets course is essentially, um, it's essentially what used to be called a correspondence course. So all of the communication between students and uh, faculty is written. And unfortunately, because our students don't have access to the internet, much of the work is handwritten. Sometimes they have word processors, and so we have typed work. And so for me, when I teach a packets course, they're receiving all of the materials, including I transcribe lectures just as I would deliver them in a philosophy class with slides, and they have readings and they have assignments. And then I write back and forth, not only feedback, but weekly letters to each student to communicate with them, just as if I was spending time with them in office hours. Um, so that's, that's a packets course. Um, and then this course is an in-person version, so they are doing the readings ahead of time. Um, there's no lecture, it's a discussion-based course, so they don't have that element of the course. And then they do have weekly assignments where, again, because we don't have those interactions outside of the classroom, I do a lot of written feedback and whenever I can, weekly letters to each student as well. So tell us a little, you told us about the Philip K. Dick novel, novelette, so what else do you Use, what else are they reading? What else are they talking about? Well, yes, and this relates to your last question, actually, because the first work um, that we read, after a very 
short, short story we read on the first day of class together as a group is uh, Frankenstein. Um, and, you know, just a few years ago, um, we celebrated the 200th anniversary of that incredible book. So we use a, a very special anniversary edition that's annotated. And the annotations are provided by a wide array of scholars. So we have, you know, philosophers and all kinds of scientists and sociologists. And it's wonderful and engaging. Um, and so we start with that text, but part of why that text is really important in this class, I thought about not using it in this course because the idea of monstrosity and the alienation of, I'll call him the being, my students usually call him the creature, right, and people usually refer to him as the creature, it, it's um, so profoundly relatable for students who are incarcerated that I, I was a little bit reticent to use the text, but having taught ethics, I understand that the way that students living inside are going to engage any idea in ethics is going to be different. And it's often going to be different in ways that I cannot myself anticipate. So I decided to go into it without, I hope, too much prejudice and to see what happened. And what's so interesting is by the second day we were discussing Frankenstein, where the students were so deeply relating to the being they asked me, did you choose this book uh -huh. understanding that we would relate to the monster, mm -hmm. that we would know what it is to be the monster? Mm -hmm. and, and I confessed to them, I, I didn't know it would be quite like this. <laughs> I didn't know it would be. And, and their, their writings about the creature and how we understand him have been so beautiful and profound that I wish they could be published and shared with fans of Frankenstein. So uh, tell us about some of the other texts that you're looking at. Well. I feel very strongly that anyone who reads Frankenstein needs to read Victor Laval's incredible graphic novel, Destroyer, right after. So this is a, just an extraordinary work. I believe it was published in 2007, though it takes place in 2006. And it's a, a creative reimagining of the Frankenstein story. The creature is a character in the novel, um, but it's retold in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement. And so the main character in the novel, um, Dr. Baker, is a scientist who reanimates her son, Akai, who was murdered by police officers. Mm -hmm. And so what the story effectively plays around with on my reading is a question that all of the students asked in this class. What if the creature had been loved and cared for? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What if he'd been loved and cared for? What mm -hmm. would have happened? And that's the story we get in Destroyer. It's an absolute masterpiece. It plays around with all kinds of philosophical questions. Ayn Rand is a hidden character in uh, the novel. Uh, um, so there's a lot of philosophical content. And then I mentioned we're currently reading Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? So we'll be reading the second half of the novel for this week. Um, one of the most philosophical novels I think that has ever been written. And we'll also be reading a short story collection by Ursula Le Guin, who many Oregonians know. Um, but I don't think this work is that well known. Um, so Changing Planes is a collection in which uh, Le Guin plays around with the idea of visiting alternate realities. And each one plays around with a deeply philosophical concept like um, language or personal identity or community. Um, and when the students read this, they're going to then imagine their own alternative world and bring it back and ethically analyze it in relation to our own world. And we also include short stories as well. Do you have them read philosophical essays as well, or is it all fiction? A little bit. So we do have some nonfiction. It's mostly contemporary and written for a popular audience. And some of that, you know, I've been finding, I, I had a 
very carefully crafted syllabus, but it feels like every week there's a new piece written that's relevant to the course, mm -hmm. something on um, artificial intelligence, genetic engineering, human reproduction, all of these themes we're taking up. So I've often found a piece, in fact, two weeks ago I found a piece that came out the day before class, mm -hmm. and I brought it in and we talked about that piece. Um, they're not reading conventional philosophy because this isn't a lecture course where they're meant to learn the content. They're meant to do philosophy, mm -hmm. although they very often have questions about historical philosophy, and it's fun to, to answer those and talk about so that. Tell, so tell us a little bit about um, the principles you use in the class, in the in, inside classroom, to help them do philosophy. How do you, how do you pick that up? Well, the first and most important important principle is that we are all philosophers and this is something I believe very deeply. I think it's truer for the students in this class than it is even for many college students because you know philosophia etymologically it's the love very particular kind of love, philia, of uh, wisdom, a particular kind of wisdom, Sophia. But I always tell students, for me and for many philosophers, it's, it's a mistranslation because we really should call um, philosophy the love of the pursuit of wisdom, right? So we, need, we should have a word for that. Because what it means to do philosophy is, is not to love something that's static and unchanging, as if you can find the truth with the capital T and there it is, I'm done, I have the truth, I am now wise. It's a constant, passionate, loving pursuit, right? Um, a, a constant pursuit of answers to questions that matter with the understanding that there never will be final answers and that there always will be disagreement and debate. So we start from the very first day. Um, I mean, I love to just ask a provocative question and just throw people right into things, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you've taught in the, the uh, prison education program before. Yes. So yeah. w tell us about another class that you've taught in that program. So the other course I've taught is uh, my introductory ethics course, which I started developing my very first year of graduate school here at the University of Oregon, which would have been, I don't know, 20 some odd years ago. And um, it's, it's evolved a lot since then, but I still teach it in a similar way. And I don't know other instructors who teach ethics in this way. Mm. I teach ethics against what the philosopher Simon Blackburn has called the threats to ethics. The ideas that undermine the possibility or the plausibility of ethics. So ideas that everyone will be familiar with, like ethical egoism, uh, cultural relativism, and some that people may not be as familiar with, um, like false consciousness. And so we begin by reading literature related to those ideas, and then we look at some moral theory, both historical moral theory and uh, contemporary, including feminist moral theory. And then we take up some practical questions and we ask, how can we address these threats in our lives? Um, and so that, that's a course that I've taught in that way as a packets course. And you've also taught that course in the Honors College as well? In, I've taught, um, I've taught a, I, caught, I taught a course called The Threats to Ethics uh -huh. specifically, where all we focused on uh -huh. was an array of threats to ethics. That was a, just a wonderful course. And I've taught existentialist ethics in uh, the Honors College as well. I've taught the intro ethics course for the philosophy department here, mm -hmm. and I currently teach it at LCC as well. Hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned that some of the, the uh, philosophy that you have your students read is feminist philosophy. Absolutely. And you are among many of the many of the many things that you do, you are one of the co-organizers of the second annual International Society for Philosophy in Film 
Symposium, That's right. which takes place in London this summer, and the topic of that symposium is Strange New World, Science Fiction, Film, and Philosophy, which, by the way, the OHC has co-sponsored. Yes, but, we're um, so grateful. So first, tell us about the International Society for Philosophy in Film. Tell us a little bit about that society. Yes, so ISPIF, <laughs> the International Society for Philosophy in Film. So this um, is a collaborative project that grew out of some conversations that had started years ago. And the basic principle behind this organization is that film is philosophical, that film does philosophy, in the same way that we now widely recognize that so much literature does philosophy. And that means for us that we, we can and absolutely should engage it in a philosophical way which is to say, use it as a resource in philosophical practice. Um, so we held our very first in-person event last year in London, and uh, the theme that we chose for last year was film noir, which we thought would be a nice sort of intro and foot in the door. And this year we chose science fiction, and I will say I may have had some influence on that choice. Um, but, but it's a wonderful topic, and uh, the response so far has been incredible. We've accepted an array of really wonderful papers from a, an interdisciplinary group of scholars at many levels, um, and we're just so excited to, to get together and to share that work. How many participants do you know? How many? So we've capped it at 25. This is a symposium, and we may only have just over 20. Um, I, I should say, very importantly, um, I had a wild idea that it would be wonderful to incorporate the students from the prison education course into the conference. So on the first day of class, I came and I told them about that, and I said, would you have any interest, and I don't know how it will work practically, but would you have any interest in co-authoring a paper that we could share at the conference? Mm. Every single student in the class immediately said, yes, please, when can we start? So next week, we're doing a brainstorming session to begin the project. Um, but they will be writing a paper, which all participants will read in advance and comment on. And if we can get it done logistically, we're going to have at least one of the students join us via Zoom for the conference. Um, if we can do it logistically, what we really want to do is to have a panel and to have all of the students um, so that we can um, have the conference participants talk with them. Wow, cool. Well, yeah. good luck. I hope Thank it, you. I hope so it works we're, we're going to make it work. <laughs> so, so um, continuing on the theme of feminist philosophy, you are also a managing editor of the journal Hypatia. That's right. So first of all, what should we know about that journal? What's important about that journal? Oh, what's important about it? Well, one thing you should know is uh, Hypatia is celebrating its 40th anniversary and we're having a conference this September. We may talk more about that, but um, so Hypatia is an incredibly important journal in the field of philosophy because as many, many people who know anything at all about philosophy will know, it's historically and even today a wildly male-dominated field. And for a very long time after women were entering into academia in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, women were still having trouble getting their work published if they used their own names and if they in particular were trying to publish works related to feminism or to any concerns um, related to what it is to be a woman or to have a gender. Um, and so Hypatia was developed as a way to give young female and feminist scholars a place to publish their work. 
and it is now a preeminent journal of feminist philosophy. I, I would say the preeminent journal, but I'm sure there we could have some debate of that. And it's very special to me because when I was in graduate school, I met the wonderful Iris Marion Young, who came to the University of Oregon, and she took the time to talk with me, a very new graduate student, um, about a paper I was working on, on unwanted pregnancy. And the problem I had run into is there was effectively no way to write the paper. It was impossible because there was no literature. Mm -hmm. No one had done this before. Mm -hmm. And so I talked with her and she encouraged me and she told me what she'd done when she confronted that same problem in her early career. And I wrote the paper and it was published in Hypatia in a special issue in her honor after she passed away. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a very, very special journal for me, but so many of my colleagues have similar stories of having their first publication or a very important publication in Hypatia. Hmm. So I am so honored to serve as a managing editor for that journal. It's incredible. So yeah. I, I don't know if you'll be able to an answer this question, but can you give us a sense of, I mean, you said it's 40 years, amazing. Yes. By the way, the Humanities Center is also celebrating its 40th anniversary yes, next I year. Yes, I noticed that, yes. Um, can you give us a sense of any major transformations that have happened in feminist philosophy over the past 40 years? Do you have any sense of oh that? Oh my goodness, how much time do we have? <laughs> well, you don't, just one or two. Um, because there are so many, I think a better approach, if it's all right with you, would be to say a word or two on what's been happening very recently. Mm -hmm. One thing that people should know is that there was a shift in submissions during the pandemic in some really interesting ways. And this is something I understand that many journals have experienced as well. Initially, we were seeing fewer submissions by women scholars and many more submissions by male scholars, hmm. which some have reasonably, I think, interpreted as a sign that women were doing the unpaid labor in the home while they were still working from home and were less able to publish. But sort of coming out of the pandemic, we have had an absolute surge. In fact, it's been challenging, I'll say, to manage um, the number of really excellent quality submissions we're receiving. Questions about the very nature and gender identity have been central, just as they have been in popular culture. And what's been so fascinating to me is to see just the, the rapidity with which we'll see an idea appear in feminist theory, in the literature, and a year, two years later, it is popular culture. And mm -hmm. it, it doesn't just enter into popular culture mm -hmm. in a subtle way, it's the new norm. It's the new language. And so we're using all kinds of terms today in discussions about gender and sexuality that I don't think people know come from long-standing conversations in feminist theory. Um, another really interesting thing that's happening recently that I find quite promising, in fact, I just finished co-authoring uh, the introduction to a cluster on misogyny the range of misogyny as misogyny is supposedly retreating, how it's finding new forms, we've had many new pieces related to masculinity mm -hmm. and the potential for positive forms of masculinity. And by the way, that was the topic of my ISPF paper last year. Mm. Um, Fascinating. Yeah. So 
as I mentioned, there, next year is the 40th anniversary. So the U of O is hosting a conference in honor of the 40th anniversary, Hypatia's Promise, Opening the Archives, Charting Feminist Futures. That's September 6th through the 9th, 2023. And that's also co-sponsored by the AOHC. But first of all, what should we know about the conference? What's important about the conference? What's unique about that conference? Oh, it's going to be incredible. Well, first of all, we have so many wonderful feminist theorists coming, and it's an interdisciplinary group, which is very important and part of Hypatia's character. So even though the focus is on philosophical work, not everyone attending will specialize in philosophy, and that will really enrich uh, the diversity of the conference. It's also important, and this is something Hypatia has always emphasized, that, that we have faculty uh, at many different levels. So we have everyone from first-year faculty members to well-established, well-known scholars. We also have many graduate students participating. And something I've really been an advocate for, though it's difficult to do at an event that happens before the academic school year begins, is I've really advocated for having undergraduates mm -hmm. come and attend. Um, so we'll, we'll have a very diverse group and we are going to have presentations by scholars from around the world on a variety of topics related to feminist philosophy and feminist theory. Um, and it's going to be a celebration because this is such a wonderful achievement to notice the moment in time we're in where we can look back on everything that feminist theorists have, have done in the past in all of the new avenues that have been opened up and that we're looking at right now. So um, tell us about the part of it, which is the opening of the archives. What, what's happening there? This is incredible. So the Hypatia archives are housed at the University of Oregon. And uh, Kamisha Russell, who is here at the University of Oregon has, and is also part of the Hypatia team, has done just an incredible amount of work and collaborated with our wonderful librarians to make that happen. So we are going to be showing um, parts of the Hypatia archive. And we're still curating that collection in the sense that we're still deciding what specifically to show people. In fact, just last week I was going through our, you know, in <laughs> emails from 20 years ago and finding new information um, about how Hypatia began. And we have some mm. wonderful original correspondences when the idea for the journal was first emerging. And of course, we have some beautiful pieces um, that scholars wrote that became um, just uh, so important in the literature that they then built careers on that we'll be sharing as well. So, so we just have a couple of minutes left. This will yes. be my last question. Sure. Um, are you working on any of your own philosophical work at this moment? I am. Can I you am. tell us about Thank it? you for asking. So I wrote my dissertation on kindness and on kindness as a response to the problem of moral luck, which is sort of another way of thinking about human finitude and the fact that we're not self-created beings, we're deeply interdependent beings. And when I wrote my dissertation, which is 300 and some odd pages long, I wrote it as a book. And at the time, my intention was just to leave it, and, and it, it was done. It was everything I thought it should be, and I, I was happy enough with it. I've never been able to stop caring about kindness. It remains for me the most important, the most important idea um, in, in all of ethics. And so what I've been doing for the last several years is, is writing essays on kindness. A few of them relate very loosely to the dissertation, but most of them have gone far beyond that. So for example, there are some pieces in feminist theory. 
Um, I'm writing one for the conference, actually for the ISPF conference on kindness and the multiverse, the concept of the multiverse. Um, and, and so what I would like to do next year, I'm actually cutting back a little bit on work because as has perhaps become clear, I have too many jobs. <laughs> and um, so I've decided to cut back on work a little bit next year to focus on writing. And my hope is um, I do have a book proposal already ready to go and I've had some contact with the press. And my hope is just to focus on that kindness project as well as a couple of other um, articles and book chapters that I'm working on. Well, so. Caroline, um, good luck with those efforts. Thank you so much. Good luck with the conference in London. Good luck with yes. the conference at U of O. And good luck with your teaching uh, in, the, in the prison and out. Thank you so much. It's been great talking it. to you. You too. Thank you. I've been speaking with Caroline Lundquist, instructor of philosophy at the University of Oregon. As a 2022-2023 Oregon Humanities Center Wolf professor, Lundquist revised and taught a course titled Ethics Through Science Fiction for incarcerated students in UO's prison education program. Thanks so much for watching.